from the fire or from the burning. It's kind of interesting. My wife just reminded me that um, the story of John Wesley is an interesting story. Uh, he there was a grew up in a, a parsonage in uh, Epworth in Lincolnshire in England, and there was a fire in the parsonage. And all the family got out. There's a lot of them in the family. But there was one missing. And that was John Wesley. He was a little lad at the time. And he was stuck up on the second floor. And the house was going up in flames. And uh, they were able, uh, by the grace of God, to rescue him. And uh, he called himself for the rest of his life. That brand plucked from the burning. (laughs) And of course, by God's grace, after he was converted... He was able to be used of God to pluck many uh, from the burning through his fiery gospel preaching. So just an interesting addition to that thought that we've been thinking of. Zechariah chapter 4 now, please. I'm going to read the entire chapter, just 14 verses, but very well worth our consideration. It says this, verse 1, And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep, and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. And two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof, with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. Then answered I and said unto him, Who are these two olive trees? upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof. And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches, which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And again, God always blesses the reading of his precious word. So just by way of a title for this particular message, we want to think about the exhausted prophet, because we find him in a deep sleep at the beginning of this chapter. An exhausted prophet, and then a vision of an exhaustless lampstand. Okay, this candlestick is really a lampstand. It's like the tabernacle. You remember the seven branch menorah in there? That's the picture that's in view here. But it's got a, a abundant supply of oil so that it's able to shine continually. So exhausted prophet and a vision of an exhaustless lampstand. Now we might ask the question, why is this man so exhausted? And we have to remind ourselves that he has been having a series of night visions. And he's a young man. And one thing about young men is they need a lot of sleep. At least my kids when they were teenagers seemed to need lots of sleep. Uh, How do we know he's a young man? Chapter 2 verse 4, it says, He said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. And so that's, uh, again, it's the prophet that's to be told this. He's the young man that's in view 
And so he's a young man, and he's been in the middle of a series, and, and he's actually going to have eight night visions. He's already had four in this one night, and now we're at vision number five. We're kind of jumping in into the midst of this. This is vision number five. And he's exhausted. I don't think it's just because he's a teenager and he needed sleep. I think it was because he was having visions of divine things. And usually, when men come into the presence of the divine, usually they, they end up just prostrate on their faces. And often just totally wiped out because of the experience of being in the presence of the divine. And so certainly that's going to be the picture here. We'll think about it in a little bit more detail. But <clears throat> this particular vision, we, we said that up to now the visions have been designed to encourage the people. They've been in captivity for 70 years. A remnant has come back. They've laid the foundation of the temple Lots of opposition has come up from the people of the land that have moved in. When they moved out, they moved in. These foreigners came into the land and they're opposing them. We'll look at some of the details of that in a little while. And so as a result of opposition, they stopped the work of building the house of God. And so these visions are given to Zechariah to encourage the leaders and the people. The first few visions were to encourage the people in general. And the message was this. God is saying, I am with you again, I am going to build Jerusalem again. And they were very encouraging messages. But the ones that we've been looking at, the one last night and the one tonight, are designed not so much the people in general in view, but the leaders in view. And so we saw last night, it was a vision to encourage Joshua the high priest. Because once the temple is completed, you need a high priest to operate in the temple. And, of course, Joshua has come from Babylon. He's defiled. His garments are defiled. And, and, and the, the enemy, uh, Satan, is telling him, you're too dirty. You could never do this. And so the Lord encourages him by telling him his iniquities are cleansed. And, and he's going to clothe him in these garments that make him fit for the, the priestly ministry. Maybe I'll just pause here because, uh, again, it's always good to listen to your wife. And, uh, and uh, I, I wish she was with me more often because I'm sure I'd be a lot better preacher if my wife was with me more often. And part of the reason is that because she'll tell me things I missed. And she said that last night, it almost seemed like I was talking about the dirty priests and I was just talking about the guys being dirty. <laughs> and she felt kind of the women, the women got off lightly last night. So, 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 and, and she's right. And, and uh, I, I didn't want to give that impression because I want to tell you that it's interesting that we talked about the thought life and how uh, this... This mitre that was put on his head had holiness unto the Lord. And, and the thought life is the, really the key to the whole life. We are what we think. Uh, you're not what you think you are, but what you think you are. You get the play on words there. Maybe that was maybe you're too close to supper time to get that. But you get that? you're not what you think you are, because we always think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. You're not what you think you are, but what you think you are. And I have been observing in recent times, it's amazing, I've heard this just recent stories of women, housewives with children, who have been feeding their minds on Christian romance novels. And two of them have abandoned their husbands and their children and ran off with somebody they met online, maybe somebody uh, from a former relationship that they met on Facebook, or somebody they just met on some dating site, and who put that thought in their head? Well, it's, their, it's in their heads because they're reading these Christian romance novels, and, and they always have the, the knight in shining armor. And their husband comes home from work in dirty overalls, and, you know, maybe a bit of... B.O. because he's been working hard all and he just doesn't fit the profile anymore. And so we have to be careful whether we're men or women about what we think about. And we, we need to be holy people. And, and, and uh, I'm told, I, I don't know it for sure, but, but I'm told statistically the number of women that actually watch pornography is now catching up on men. Frightening to even think about. 
why anybody would do that, but that's the, that's the bottom line. So I'm just saying, whole, we, we, if we're going to see a move of God in rebuilding the house of God, whether we're male or female is irrespective. God wants holiness in his house. Holiness belongeth thine house, O Lord. He's a holy God. The, the church of the living God is meant to be a place of holiness. We're gathered to his name, in his name. Uh, and so we need to be very conscious of that and the need of cleansing. And, and one of the things in this previous chapter, when Joshua drew near uh, to stand before the Lord, that's when the enemy came in and with his accusations. And, and it's true that when we draw closer to the Lord, one of the things I found is that the closer you get to the Lord, it says, if you walk in the light as he is in the light. And then the very next day, is the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses from all sin. You say, why would you put that there if you're walking in the light? Because when you get in the light, it shows up dirt that you didn't even know was there. You, you know the picture, right? Your, your wife cleans the house, it looks really nice. And then a shaft of sunlight comes in the window. What do you see? Dust particles everywhere, right? It, the, the light, the intensity of the light shows up dirt that you didn't know was there. And the closer you get to the Lord, the more conscious you will be of your own sinfulness. And that's why you need a reminder that the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's why it's right there after walking in the light. Because the closer you get to the Lord, the more you'll see things about yourself you'd never imagined. How corrupt your heart and mind is. So, very significant that this holiness, or for a movement in biblical holiness, would be a wonderful thing. But now we get to chapter four, and again, it's it's designed now not to not to encourage the high priest, but this is designed to encourage Zerubbabel. He's the governor of Jerusalem. Now, just keep your finger in Zechariah four. We need to go to Matthew just for a second and chapter one and the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. And we're going to find this fellow Zerubbabel is right here in Matthew 1 verse 12. It says, After that they were brought to Babylon, Zechariah begat uh, Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel. Okay? So Zerubbabel is actually in the lineage of the Lord Jesus. And you see, although Israel allowed to go back after 70 years of captivity they're still under the dominion of a foreign king. They can't have their own king. In fact, God is not going to let them have their own king. He's going to keep on overthrowing and overthrowing and overthrowing until the one whose right it is comes. That's the Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but Zerubbabel, if things were better, wouldn't have been the governor. He would have been the king. <laughs> but he's not. He's the governor. But he's, he's one of the leaders of the nation who's going to be involved in this building project. And so God wants to encourage not only the priest, but also, as it were, the civil authority in Israel and to, to, to rebuild the house of God. And so he gives this vision, and it's a vision, we said, of this, this lampstand. And, and the idea of a lampstand, and again, let's just look at another scripture. I want you to look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. Revelation 1, verse 20. And we're going to see that a lampstand has an idea of testimony for God in a dark world. And so Revelation 1, 20, it says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, or lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which thou sawest are the seven churches. And so in the Old Testament, Israel were meant to be a light for God in the world. In fact, God's plan for them was for them to be a light to the Gentiles. Israel were meant to be that. But they, they hadn't done very well. They were, they'd been taken into captivity because they'd out the Gentiles. So their light wasn't shining very brightly at all. In fact, it was hardly shining at all. In fact... God's name was blasphemed because of them. Very opposite of what should have been. 
But now they've come back to the land after 70 years of divine chastening. Babylon captivity was God chastening his people. And the remnant comes back. And I'm sure in the back of their minds, the question would be always there, will we ever be a light for God again? Is that, is that going to happen? <laughs> will we be that light God intended us to be? And we might ask that about the church. I mean, we, we, we could say that there's... Sadly, there's been many scandals connected with the professing church of Jesus Christ in recent history that you wonder, will we be the light again in the darkness we're meant to be? And that's a good question that hangs over this chapter. Uh, They're coming back, they're going to rebuild the house, but are they ever going to be this light that God wants them to be in the nations? Always God's plan for that, but is it going to happen? What we're going to see in verse 6 is the encouragement is this, that God is going to do it, but he's going to do it by his spirit. Now, you notice the end of verse 6, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And the only way that we could ever, any of us, whether it's Israel in the Old Testament, whether it's the church in the New Testament, whether it's us as individuals, the only way we can ever be a light for God is in full dependence on the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the, the, the overall message. That if you, you've got the cliff notes now, if you want to go home, you can. This is the main message tonight. We're going to develop it, obviously, and we're going to look at this passage in detail. Uh, but, but that's the, the real question. Will we, ever be, will we, the church, be ever be a power and light among the nations again? And the answer surely is the same. Only by the reviving work of the Holy Spirit. It's the only way it's ever going to happen. No other way. Now notice the order of the visions. Chapter 3 is about cleansing. Chapter 4 is about power. To be a testament. And it's not accidental. It's deliberate. And the thought is this, that you will never be filled with the Spirit of God if you're dirty. Cleansing must come before filling and empowering. It's always that way. And and if I could put it this way, one of the verses that the Lord has used in my own life to really challenge me about this whole subject of the Holy Spirit is John 7. Just turn there for a second, please. John chapter 7. And verse 37 through 39. And very challenging. It says, In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. And I read that verse on a particular occasion just in my regular readings, but sometimes it's really good to ask yourself questions about what you're reading. You see, I believed on the Lord Jesus. I came to him. And then he said, he that believes on me, out of his innermost being will flow these rivers of living water. And I had to ask myself, Lord, is that a good description of me? Do I have that overflowing, refreshing, abundant life that touches this dry, thirsty world all the time? Is that my life? Is that a description of me? And and it's it's good not only to ask yourself questions, but be really honest about the way you answer them. And I had to come to the conclusion, Lord, at best, there's a trickle. Rivers, that's, (laughs) that's a bit much. Yeah, that's not coming out of me, but maybe a trickle. And I had to ask the question, well, what's wrong? What's the issue? Why Why is there not that overflowing abundant life? What's blocking the flow, you see? And, and I want to say this, that before the Spirit can work out through you, if there's sin in your life, His energy is not directed out through you, but inwardly to you to bring you to the place where he can use you. 
So, so maybe a lot of this trickle is because so much of the Spirit's energy in my life has been used working in me to convict me of I'm not what I ought to be. So that once, you, once that does its work, then he says, okay, now I can work out through you. And so there has to be this cleansing before there's this, this filling, this empowering, this bright light that, that is meant to shine. So let's look at the vision itself and its details now. So he says in verse 1, The angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep. And we said he was exhausted. Uh, and partly we, we believe uh, because he'd been in the presence of God. And if you just look at another parallel in Daniel, and I'm sorry, I'm going to make you look at a lot of scriptures tonight, but that's good because the turning of the pages causes a breeze that will keep you alert and awake. And it's good way to find your way around the Bible. Daniel 8, verse 15, It came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and saw for the meaning, then... Be, be, behold there stood before me as an appearance of a man I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli which is called and said Gabriel make this man to understand the vision so he came near where I stood and when he came I was afraid and fell upon my face but he said to me understand O son of man for the time of the end shall be the vision now as he was speaking with me I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground but he touched me and set me upright. So you get the idea, when a man is brought into the presence of divine things with such you know, kind of power as this, oftentimes they're, they're prostrate, and then he's in a deep sleep, and he had to be wakened up and put on his feet. And, and I think we've got a similar pattern here, where he's, he's been shown these visions uh, angelic beings, glorious angelic beings have been, have been uh, revealing things to him and, and even visions of the angel of the Lord which is a picture of Christ uh, in the Old Testament and so it affected him physically and mentally and he was utterly exhausted <clears throat> others have observed and I like the observation that this idea of being wakened as a man that is wakened out of his sleep might well be put there as a reminder <laughs> that, that the things that we're thinking about, the Holy Spirit, bright testimony, often come at a time when the church is in a very sleepy state. And what it needs is awakening. Right? That's the picture. That, that, and oftentimes in the, in the history of the church, there's been times where it just seems like the church is a, a sleeping giant. And it's just in a comatose state. And it's almost like it needs to be wakened up out of its slumber and energized by the Spirit and shining brightly again. I think that would be a good description of probably where we're at right now. Sleeping giant. And we need waking up. And again, Scripture talks about over and over again to wake up. Uh, you know, kind of uh, lots of great verses that speak about this. Awake thou that sleepest and rise from the dead and Christ shall give thee light. Ephesians 5.14 Isaiah 52.1 Romans 13.11 You know, it's, it's nearer than we thought and it's time to wake up out of our sleep. And so there's lots of Scriptures that talk about this. And, and so it, it is possible for to be a believer... And to be in a kind of a slumber, spiritually, sleepy, saved, on our way to heaven, but lacking divine energy, kind of a sleepy church. Boy, we need waking up. <laughs> and so this prophecy is given to encourage those who were involved in building the house of God in remnant time. And in outward weakness. And it certainly has great application for our time. We're seeking to be with the Lord. He's building his church. But we want to be co-laborers together with him. But it's remnant times. It's a time of weakness. And we need the encouragement that a chapter like this can give us. To wake up out of our sleep. And to be a brilliant vessel of light for God. Individually and corporately. So he says in verse 2. He said to me what seest thou? 
and, and of course he describes this, this lampstand all of gold and yet it's a little bit different than the tabernacle description it's, there's great similarities it's got the seven branches just like the, 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 the tabernacle picture but there's, there's one aspect of it that is very different and, and so the difference is what we need to pay attention to and so he says he said I have looked and behold a lampstand all of gold and here's the difference a bowl on the top of it and his seven lamps thereon and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof so if you get the picture there's, there's, there's the seven branch lampstand and then there's like a reservoir a bowl on top out of this reservoir there are seven pipes that go directly to the seven branches of the lampstand and the picture is this is this is kind of like a automation here you've got you've got a continual supply of oil to keep the lampstand shining right because a lampstand as beautiful as it is in those days if you had no oil you had no light right they were the lampstand was oil dependent Without the oil, no shining. That should give us a lesson there, by the way. Because we know consistently, oil in the scriptures is a symbol of what? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. And, and again, the church has the Holy Spirit being given. It knows we have that copious supply of the Spirit, but if we don't avail of that supply, we'll never shine. Is that what it says in Acts 1 verse 8? You've been teaching through Acts. After the Holy Ghost <coughs> comes upon you, you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the most parts of the earth. No point going anywhere until the Spirit comes upon you because you're not going to do any good anywhere. Right? Doesn't matter how eloquent you are, you're not going to have any impact unless the Holy Ghost comes upon you. Then you can go and you'll have an impact. And so this is this, this abundant supply. And, and even more than that, this abundant supply is kind of brought to our attention because there are two olive trees on either side of it. One on the right side of the bowl, the other on the left side of the bowl. And you go down to verse 12 and it says, he answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches which through the golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And so maybe the picture is this, that, that the olive trees have golden pipes coming out of them and they're constantly filling the reservoir with oil that then goes to the pipes. So the idea is you've got this constant supply. And of course what's even more amazing about it is clearly supernatural because normally if you have olive trees you have to shake them and get the olives off and then you've got to crush them and you've got to do all that stuff to get to that lovely golden oil. Right? But in this case, it was automatic. It was coming straight through the branches into the, the reservoir. And so it was an abundant supply. Amazing to even think about. And we again remind ourselves that when the light of the church is brightest, it is at times when the Holy Spirit is given his rightful place. In other words, the Christians are dependent on the Holy Spirit. So we love the Acts of the Apostles, but, but really, that's a poor title for the book. Because the Holy Spirit is mentioned 50 times in the Acts of the Apostles. And really, the true title would be this, the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Because without the Holy Spirit, well, we know you're kind of the big ringleader of the Apostles, was terrified by a little maid girl and denied the law three times with oaths and cursings. So if we're just depending on Mr. Rocky, Peter, we're not going anywhere. But that same Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared down the same mob that crucified Christ, eyeball to eyeball, and said, you crucified your own Messiah. What a difference. The boldness. Where did that come? It's the Spirit of God. Spirit-empowered, spirit directed ministry was powerful and so what we could say is this 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 church if it's is going to shine brightly if israel are going to if this is going to happen for israel it has to be the work of the holy spirit 
There has to be this abundant supply of oil. And that would keep the lampstand burning brightly. In fact, there's, there's two things, isn't there, with these lampstands. The wicks had to be constantly trimmed. And the oil had to be poured in. And we could say this, that maybe that's a picture of the cleansing. You know, any of the soot, whatever, had to be wicks had to be clean. And the oil had to be poured in. And so the message of the vision for the people was most encouraging. How are they going to be a light for God again? Well, the answer is simple. The Spirit of God is going to do a work in your day. That's really encouraging, isn't it? So verse 4, he says, um, So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And again, we've got, we got to say that this, this young man, he's, he's always asking questions. He wants answers. He wants to know, well, well what does this mean? What are these? And, and again, God rewards spiritual interest. And, and it's always thrilling to see young men and women that are interested in spiritual things. Isn't that a great thing to see? They go hunger for the word of God. It's a good thing to see. And, and this prophet, God can use him because he's hungry for answers. He wants answers. What are these, my Lord? And the angel that talked with me answered and said to me, Knowest thou not what these be? I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, verse 6, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. So now we've, we've kind of looked at the vision itself, and now we're going to get an explanation of the vision and its meaning. The purpose of the vision, contextually, is to assure Zerubbabel, who had laid the foundation of the temple, that he would lay the capstone the last stone. He's going to see the work accomplished. That's, that's the big idea of the vision. To encourage the, uh, the, the servant of God, Zerubbabel. That's what's going to happen. He would, he would have the work completed. Now the foundation. There's, from the foundation to this point. There's, there's kind of a gap. 16 years have gone by. Like this is not just a little interruption. This is a bit, 16 years of inactivity before the prophets come and speak. And so sometimes we can start things and we kind of lose our steam. And, we, and they don't get finished. And probably we're like the prophet, we're exhausted. <laughs> we're, we're kind of, we've worn out, we started well, and we had great energy at the beginning, but, but the project is longer and harder than we ever imagined. And now we're worn out. Is that we're going to finish it? Is it going to happen? The encouragement, it is going to happen, but not in your energy. Because your energy is spent. That's the best place to be, actually. It's best to be spent. Because the Lord says, okay, now I can step in and show you what I can do. And sometimes, we have to learn that way. We, we, some of us, we, it was interesting, we were running around the United States of America preaching and teaching. We were just convinced that God's word was going to change people. And the assemblies were going to get straightened out and everything was going to be wonderful. And we're working ourselves to the bone and nothing's happening. In fact, it's getting worse. And some of us got discouraged and said, what's missing? And we couldn't realize prayer was missing and dependence on the Spirit of God was missing. And it left us exhausted and the work was getting worse. So here, 16 years, and, and they've hardly, all they got is the foundation, nothing else is done. He's telling me it's going to get done, but it's not going to be in your strength. And so he says, in this lovely verse, verse 6, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Now this word might is used 56 times in the Old Testament for army or military might. And God is saying, Israel, this time, it's not going to be military conquest that's going to enable you to build this light for God. It's not going to be by military might. It's always a tragedy, by the way, when God's people, especially in this dispensation, try to use military might to do the work of God. It actually sets the work back. So how did the Crusades work in terms of forwarding the cause of Christ amongst Muslims. 
Is that a success? It's an utter disaster, wasn't it? Still emblazoned in their memory after all these years. It didn't work. In Ireland, uh, my wife and I were missionaries there for eight years, and um, one of the things that you didn't want to associate with in Ireland was a man called Oliver Cromwell. Now, it's interesting. Oliver Cromwell was a born-again believer. His chaplain was John Owen, our reformed uh, friends love John Owen. Like he's there, almost their quote. They love John Owen. No, that's not a wrong statement, but they, they really like him. He was the chaplain. And, and they, because they failed to see a distinction between Israel and the church, they saw the Catholics in Ireland as the Canaanites, and Oliver Cromwell was Joshua. And he was going to go in there, and he was going to clear out these Catholics, and he was going to send them to hell... Or to Connaught. Connaught's the west coast of Ireland, where Henri comes from, where he said there's not enough clay to bury a man, enough wood to hang a man, water to drown a man, I forget what else. But anyway, it's very barren, the west of Ireland. Send all the Catholics to the west of Ireland. So Henri's family would have come from the east coast, but would have been driven to the west coast by Cromwell. A Christian. A Christian that did not see the distinction between Israel and the church. Let me just say this. If you don't see the distinction between Israel and the church in the purposes of God, you're going to get it wrong always. This is essential to Bible interpretation. The church and Israel are distinct entities. Very important. Dispensational truth. Very important. Because you, you've got to rightly divide the word of truth. And people today, replacement theology, seeing the church as replacing Israel, that's just disastrous. And it leads to things like this. And it sets the gospel back centuries. That's what it does. God wants us to use the sword, but not the sword to kill people. The sword of the Spirit to convict people. Persuasion through preaching. And through lives lived to the glory of Christ. That's God's weapons for us. Weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. They're spiritual weapons. And so, he says, not by might, military might, nor by power. 58 times in the Old Testament used for strength or human strength. God's work will not be done by military might or by human strength. And again, people think human strength is going to work. They think, for instance, human intelligence. And you, get, you see how... You know, I, I love to tell this story because it thrills my soul. But, you know, D.L. Moody went to Cambridge University. Not as a student. As a preacher. And you would think, who would I pick to reach the intellectual cream of England. Right? I mean, it would be a David Gooding or a John Lennox. You know, you know those guys are kind of brilliant. So, no, he said, I'll take Dale Moody. He's a shoe clerk from Massachusetts who butchers the English language. Sometimes when he's reading scripture, he can't pronounce it. He just kind of skips over and goes to the next word. This, this is who God's... I'm going to use him. And when he first went to Cambridge, the first night of his campaign there... They, they was, the, the people were so incensed that this arrogant American would dare come and try and tell them anything. So that they even were stacking chairs in pyramids in the, in the hall and trying to disrupt the whole thing. But Moody preached in the power of the Spirit. And there was a tremendous work over a hundred undergraduates, even those that were ringleaders in, were converted to Christ through his ministry. And what God is saying is, look, I delight to use the weak and foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Then that's really so. I find that so encouraging because it lets, it lets us in, doesn't it? Like if, if all the qualification is, well, it's not, you've got to be holy, you've got to depend on the Holy Spirit, but, but then you, you've got to be weak and foolish. Oh, that, that lets me in. I, I can see I've got, there's a place for me here now. And, and, and so that's what God likes to do. So it's not by power. 
but it's by my spirit. And I I like the idea, because the thought is this. You want to be part of a work where the only explanation is God. It's not this clever guy, or these clever techniques. This is a work that God did. And and it's evident God did it. And so he says... Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. You know, today there's a lot of weakness amongst us. And, and I really believe that we don't need to find a new method or a new technique. I think what we need to do is recognize, without the Spirit of God working amongst us again, it's over. But in full dependence on Him, we can see things happen. But we've got to get there. It's got to be Him. A work that He does in us and through us. And so He says in verse 7, He says, Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth a headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace thereof. Who art thou, O great mountain? And the idea is this, that that sometimes it seems that the obstacles in the way of completing a work for God are like mountains. Huge obstacles that just seem to be insurmountable. Mountainous things. And yet, God promises here to Zerubbabel, it's a wonderful promise. Who art thou? And obviously... In this case, the mountain is just dressed as thou. It's a person. It's some personage who is powerful, who is preventing the work going forward. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain. In other words, God is going to move the mountain and make it a plain. This overwhelming, insurmountable difficulty will be overcome by the power of God's Spirit. He's going to do a work. So let's look at it contextually now, please. I want you to, you can keep your your fingers in Zechariah, but I want us to go back to the book of Ezra. We said the background is in Ezra chapter 4 and 5 concerning these incidents that we're looking at in this prophecy. So who art thou? Uh, we said it, it's it's personified, and it, it's it's a person or people that are in the way of the work. And so let's look at what happened in chapter four and verse two. Then they came to to Zerubbabel. Uh, let me just read from verse one. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel. Then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assur, which brought us up hither. Now let me just kind of do a little bit of explaining here. So so when, particularly in, in Israel, the ten tribes... When they went into captivity, the Assyrians, what they did is they moved the, the Jews out of the land and then they moved people who they conquered from other places back into the land to take the land for them. And they, they kind of settled into the land and of course there were some problems that occurred. Uh, one of the problems was they got attacked by lions. And so they, they kind of needed help and so they brought some, some Jewish people in to tell them about the God of Israel so that, you know, because their gods weren't helping them against the lions. And so they came in, they taught them about, about the God of Israel. So what they did was what they called syncretism. There was a mixture of a bit of Judaism and a bit of the paganism that they carried with them and they kind of meld it together. And these are the kind of forerunners of what we call the Samaritans in the New Testament. These half-breeds, right? Kind of half-Jewish and and of course they intermarried. And so really it all goes back to this. That what's being offered here, these, these kind of forerunners of the Samaritans, they say, 
We worship your God. Well, it's kind of partly true. They worship their God plus a bunch of other gods. Like he was just one of the pantheon, right, of them. And so they, we'll help you build this temple for God. In other words, the temptation was what we call an unequal yoke. God's people and people who are not the people of God saying, we want to help you. And they said, no, we don't want your help. We, we, we believe that God has called us to this work and we don't want you involved. Uh, we, we can do it ourselves. So look at verse 4 and 5 again of, of Ezra. So it says, Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So, so what happens then is they, these people who wanted to help them build the temple, now they're all upset that they won't let them build with them, so they're going to try and stop them. So they try and oppose them in the work, and they hire counselors to discourage them and to frustrate their purposes. And then in verse 6 and 7, they write a letter to the king, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, at the beginning of his reign, wrote they unto him an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, wrote uh, uh, Bishlam, uh, I feel a bit like Dale Moody here, I don't want to pronounce these words, but I'm not going to skip them. Uh, Mithridath, Tabil, and the rest of their com- companions unto Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the writing of the letter was written in the Syrian tongue and interpret- interpreted in the Syrian language. So now they write a letter to king Artaxerxes, positioning him, petitioning him to shut down the prophets. And, as we saw last night, verse 24 it seemed that it succeed, succeeded. Because verse 23 of chapter 4, it says, Now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and made them to cease by force and power, then cease the work of the house of God which is in Jerusalem. So it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia, which is when our book Zechariah begins. Then the prophets, verse 1 of chapter 5, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophesied unto the Jews that there in that were there in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. And then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jozadak, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God helping them. And part of the help of the prophets of God are these kind of encouraging messages that we're reading right now. And so what we're saying is, there's a mountain here. The king is saying you can't build the local population are opposed to the work. So there's great opposition. And it seems as if the work is impossible. But God is promising them that this great mountain, before Zerubbabel, it will become a plain. That's interesting that in Zechariah, just look at chapter 14, because there's another great picture of when a mountain will be a plain, but it's not just a metaphor, it's really going to happen. Zechariah 14 verse 4 says, And his feet, speaking of the Lord Jesus, shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem, on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and the, toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. Half of the mountains shall remove toward the north and half toward the south. And the point is this, that, that for the Lord, it's not a problem to make mountains flat. He, he's good at that. He's going he's gonna to do that in a coming day. The Mount of Olives is going to be like a pancake. It's divided in half. It's amazing. He's going to do a great work. And so he can do that. He, he's very good at moving mountains. And we might ask ourselves, ourselves, what mountains are we facing in the work of God today? And there are mountains. And how do we tear them down? Again, I think of that passage in Second Corinthians, I already mentioned it, where it talks about the weapons of our warfare, not carnal, 
but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And so in believing prayer, it's possible for strongholds to come down. And I think he's got in mind the book of Joshua right there. Remember Jericho? Was that a stronghold? Sure it was. And God caused the walls to come down, didn't he? He's really good at pulling down strongholds. He's really good at pulling down mountains and moving mountains. This is the God who we come to. And he's reminding them, I can do this. I can take this mountain that seems a huge obstacle. The letter from the king, the opposition from the people, and I can make it a plane. And he's saying to us, what are the obstacles? Indifference to the word of God. Unfaithfulness. Moral failure. Discouragement. There's some obstacles. We are facing some real obstacles. A bankrupt culture. We've got a lot of obstacles. But can God move mountains? Is he still able or is God exhausted as well as the prophet? No. He never gets exhausted, does he? His power doesn't change. The same yesterday, today and forever. And he can pull down these mountains. And he can remove obstacles. The answer to the problems for us today are the same as were for Zerubbabel. I believe the two things that we need to get hold of. We're going to go forward for God. We need to rediscover believing prayer that pulls down strongholds. And we need to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to work in and through us to bring miraculous things. And I'm not talking about signs and wonders, but what I am talking about is one of the greatest miracles you ever saw. A life converted. A life changed. Transformation. We were just at a Bible study um, in um, Turkey Hill Ranch Bible Camp. It's a men's intensive Bible study. We were studying the book of Leviticus. And six guys came from Oklahoma. And it was very obvious that these guys were from a very rough background. We got to know them a little bit. And these guys had all been in prison. One of the, one of the guys had been 30 years in prison was the head of the Aryan Nations Group, which is kind of a neo-Nazi organization in a prison camp. And he was the leader. And here he is, he's wearing a t-shirt that says Neighborhood Hope Dealer. Not dope dealer, hope dealer. Gloriously saved. He's got a King James Companion Bible by Bollinger marked all over. And here he is studying Leviticus and eating it up and beaming. 30 years in prison. How could God do something with... And all his buddies all had the same story. Maybe not 30 years. Every one of them. Some mountains just fell there, didn't they? Is that, is that a miracle of God's... Is that a work of the Spirit of God? You bet it is. And, and so this is the kind of God we serve. And we need to see that from this passage. What mountains are we facing in the work of God? When the early Christians faced problems, they turned to God in prayer. Book of Acts, you're going to see as you proceed through the book of Acts, they have a problem, they have a prayer meeting. In other words, they reckoned that the problems were spiritual and the solutions were spiritual. But not rocket science. And that's, I don't think anything's changed. Our problems are spiritual. Our solutions are spiritual. And so the promise is the mountains are going to be removed and then it says they're going to become a plain and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, grace, grace unto it. So the headstone or the capstone of the temple indicates its completion. The Lord Jesus was not only the foundation of the temple, but he is also the full completion of it. And when they, they complete this temple here in Zechariah, and the last piece goes on, all they're going to say is this, grace, grace unto, you, unto it. And what they're saying is this, this is God's grace. That's how it worked. It was the grace of God. He did the work. And by the way, when we get to glory, 
and we see him and we're like him, what are we going to say? Was it us? <laughs> it was grace, wasn't it? It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. Right? Grace. It's all grace. Well, grace is a wonderful thing. And we're gonna we'll get to glory, and here we are. We're gonna be like Christ, we're gonna be with Christ, we're gonna be enjoying uh, eternal bliss, and we're gonna say, Look what God's grace has done. It's amazing. But the and he's gonna build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, and at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, it'll all be a work of grace. Now, we want you to notice again, let's go back to Ezra, and we want to look at chapter 3 for a moment, and we're going to see that there were shouts when the foundation stone was laid, and now there's going to be shouts when the capstone is completed. And so, Ezra 3, verse 11, it says, they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel and all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid but we also notice that there's kind of a little bit of a mixture here many of the priests and Levites and chiefs of the fathers were ancient men these are the old guys that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy. So the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the noise for the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard afar off. So we see a couple of things here. First of all we do observe that there were shouts of acclamation when the, the original uh, foundation was laid and he's promising now that when it's finished there's going to be shouts as well triumphant shouts of grace grace unto it but there were some who were not so impressed and they were weeping and the reason they were weeping is verse 6 sorry verse 10 it says for who has despised the day of small things for they shall rejoice and so see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with these seven they are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro throughout the whole earth some of the old timers weren't that impressed because they remember Solomon's temple and by comparison Zerubbabel's temple just wasn't up to scratch it wasn't quite as big it wasn't quite as Magnificent, and so they were kind of well. They were saying, you know, it's not like the good old days. As you get older, <laughs> you find yourself doing that more and more. It's not like the good old days back then. And it's very easy to be critical of what God is doing now, because we've seen things in the past. You see, this doesn't seem to compare. But he, he wants them to realize that something significant is going to happen here. In fact. What we're going to find is that this temple is going to be more significant than the former temple. Just look back to the prophet Haggai, which is just before this, chapter 2 and verse 9. It says, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. In this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. You see, outwardly, Zerubbabel's temple didn't seem quite up to scratch compared to Solomon's temple. But Zerubbabel's temple, later on, would have kind of a bit of a makeover. King Herod would take that temple. It didn't get destroyed. It got an upgrade. It got kind of fixed up. But that's not what made it better at all. In fact, anything but. What made it better is that was the temple that the Lord Jesus would come into. Even cleansing, right? So, so, so interesting that might not look as significant, but the Lord, when he saw it, these seven eyes, God in his omniscience saw it. He liked it. He was pleased with it because he saw eternal purposes connected to that house. That would be the house that his son would go to and visit. And it would be much more significant. What we could say is this. 
In God's eyes, there are no small places or small ministries. And there are no big preachers. But we have a great God who can empower and bless his servants who trust in him. And I find that very encouraging. He can cleanse us, he can empower us, and he can use us. So the passage as a whole is encouraging because if you want kind of a summary, we've got three clear lessons here. The God who we serve is the God who provides power. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Holy Spirit power. The God we serve removes obstacles. He's the mountain-moving God. And the God we serve gives promises. The promises, again, are verse 8 and 9. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. And isn't that an encouraging thing for Zerubbabel? You started this. You're going to finish it. By the way, it's good not to be a quitter. God calls you to start something. Stick with it. And see him finish it. It's wonderful to see him finish it. So there's just one last question and then we're going to close in prayer. We're just about done. But I want to just deal with one more thing. Because there's a question here and it's verse 11 then said I and said unto him what are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereon and I answered again and said unto him what are these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves and he answered me and said knowest thou not what these be and I said no my lord then he said these are the two anointed ones that stand before the Lord of the whole earth. So there's, there's kind of two thoughts here. There's a, there's a near fulfillment in that, in one sense, the two anointed ones who God was going to use in this process of building were Joshua and Zerubbabel. And they were going to do it through the power of the Spirit. God was going to enable them to finish the work. But there's also a prophetic element to this too. Because when we get to the book of Revelation... We're going to see there's going to be another example of two very anointed preachers in the last days. Revelation 11. And we're going to see in this chapter verse, we'll look at verse 4. It's the, the two witnesses that are going to witness in the tribulation period. And verse 4 says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And so God is going to, in the last days, send two very anointed preachers. Just like I said, God always works, it seems, in twos. Things are confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses. And so he's going to send these two witnesses in the last days. And just like Zerubbabel and Joshua, these men are going to be very anointed by the Spirit of God. He's going to use them in a marvelous way. But what we could say too is that if we would yield ourselves fully to the Holy Spirit, God can use us as well. And let's just say this. um, We've been using this picture of oil. It's a beautiful picture. Oil is a source of light, right? Because it's the the oil that burns that, that gives the light. It soothes, it heals. Like, you remember the, the, the man that fell among thieves and they put in oil and, and wine and, uh, and so oil is a soothing thing. It lubricates, it, it removes friction, it's warming, it's invigorating, it's adorning, it polishes and the Spirit of God can do a lot of things in our lives. But let's just say this and it's good to say this in closing that every one of us, if we're a believer... In Christ, one of the things that happened to you the moment you got saved is that the Holy Spirit came and took up residence in your life. And your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's a person, so you didn't get a bit of Him, you got all of Him, because He's a person. You either got the person or you didn't get the person. And if you're saved, you got the person. He, you have all of Him, 
So how come we're not all living this abundant, spirit-filled life if, if we have all of him? Because the question is, does he have all of you? In other words, have we yielded control of our lives to our indwelling heavenly guest? Are we allowing him to manifest the life of Christ through us? Are we daily yielding to his control? And the problem is, if we're really honest, is I like to be in control. That's the real problem. And it's only when I yield control to him will I see amazing things happen. So we all have the Holy Spirit. Because he have all of us. Are we yielding to our indwelling heavenly guest? And we don't want to grieve him. We don't want to quench him. We don't want to ignore him. We want to fully yield ourselves to him. And if we do that, he can use us. And so these messages are to encourage. Encourage in building for God in dark days. He's the God who cleans us up. He's the God who empowers us. He's God that moves mountains. He's God who really delights to use the weak and foolish things. And we abundantly qualify. Let's pray. Father, we just pray you apply this by your spirit as you see fit. You know each person in this room and you know every need and every heart bowed in your presence. Lord, would you somehow use your word and you can do it in multiple ways all at the same time. That's what thrills us and excites us. That the same message can affect multiple people in multiple ways. Lord, we do pray that it would have an impact. Your word would have free course and be glorified in all of our lives. And we pray, Father, for the work here. It started. Lord, take it to its finish. I don't mean by that closure, but just keep building a bright lampstand for the Lord Jesus that shines in the darkness here in this dark place. We'll give thee the praise and the glory in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.